the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. So if we are sinful people living in a messed up world, if we're not careful, we're going to have messed up churches. A healthy church deals with the issues of sin and addresses them straightforward. Welcome to The Barnabas Effect with Paul Purvis, Senior Pastor of Mission Hill Church, a multicultural, multi-generational, multiplying church focused on shining the light and love of Jesus like a city on a hill. You're invited to visit any of the three locations in Temple Terrace and Tampa. For information and locations, visit missionhill.org. That's missionhill.org. Now, with today's message, here's Pastor Paul Purvis. You hear us often in our church talk about the danger of pornography. And we do that because everything we read tells us that among uh, students and among adults, the involvement in pornographic material is um, is just as great inside the church as it is among those who don't profess to follow Christ. And we, and we wouldn't have to really have statistics to know that because if you look at what is brought in by the porno- pornographic industry each year, more is brought in from that industry than uh, businesses like Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and others combined. And so why is pornography so dangerous? Some, even of faith, would say, well, if I'm just looking, if it's, if it's just my eyes and my mind, why is it such a problem? Here's the problem. Scientists have now told us that the viewing of pornography really does rewire the brain. And it's like a drug. Some of you have battled this with alcohol or with uh, some other drug. And you recognize the grip that it really does get on you, that you, you get to a place you feel like, I, I've just got to have more. The problem with pornography is those sinful thoughts get to a place where they have to be acted on. And I can just tell you, as, as one who counsels those who, who walk through marital challenges, be aware, when we do not address sinful attitudes, it's very likely that that will lead us to sinful actions. But again, that really isn't what Paul's so upset about. He's upset at the church. And so he says in verse 2, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? What is he saying to them? He's reminding them that pride is always the best friend of sin. And it's a reminder for us to look at our lives and say, is there any way where pride has caused us to have a blind spot and we're not seeing something that everybody else sees in our life that is sinful? It's like the person that says, bless God, that's one thing I would never do. Don't ever say that. It's like putting a bullseye on your back and it's opened you up to the enemy. 
In fact, studies have been done of pastors that have ex- walked through moral failures. And, and just this is not the topic today, but there are four things that uh, it's common, all, almost 100% of pastors who have had some kind of moral failure. Uh, one is they've, they've lost their intimacy in their relationship uh, with God. They're not having a, a daily time with God. Two is they have no one to whom they're accountable in their life. Um, uh, three, they've often put themselves in an inappropriate situation, whether in counseling or, or out in a meeting with someone uh, that they should not be along with. And then fourth, almost 100% of pastors who've got into a mess have said, that's one thing I could never do. It's pride. It creates a blind spot. I was thinking about that this week and working on it. And uh, I remembered a story that I used to love as a kid. You remember this story? The emperor's new clothes. It's the story of the king or the emperor who needs a new outfit for the parade. And he goes to these two tailors. And somehow they convince him that they have magic invisible thread. And they're going to make him an invisible outfit. And it is so silly. But it it kind of gets to a place to where he believes them. The story even says uh, he thought he would look foolish if he said, wait a second, I can't see any clothes. So he just trusted them. And the day came for the parade and he put on his non-clothes and went out on the parade. Now, I just need to tell you, be careful. I'm going to turn this around and read this to you like it's a kindergarten class, but there is partial nudity. All right. So. The parade made its way through the city, and crowds of people stood in the streets cheering and clapping, waiting for the emperor to appear. And when they saw the emperor at last, they could not believe their eyes. The people began to whisper to one another, but no one had the courage to say anything aloud. And one little boy and his sister made their way to the front of the crowd. And as soon as they saw the emperor, they began to laugh and point to him. And they said, look, the emperor has no clothes on. And everyone even including the emperor, knew it was true. Paul is saying, you know the problem in the church? There's nobody with the courage of a little boy and a little girl just to point out what everyone knows, what everyone sees. And how many of us have been a part of a family of faith, of a body of believers where we've experienced that, where there's a non-sin, whether it's a sinful attitude or a sinful action that everybody sees and we recognize that it's corrupting the body, it's hurting the church. And yet we're afraid to deal with it or too arrogant. In the New Living Translation, it says it this way, you're so proud of yourself, but you should be mourning in sorrow and in shame, but there's no shame. Our pride has come and then disgrace, as it says in Proverbs 11 too. I suggest to you there's a problem in our world today about this issue. There's no shame over our sinfulness. And I see it. I think you do too. Come in contact with folks and they just don't care. I'll talk with folks and I'll talk about how their attitudes or their actions are contrary to their walk with God. And I literally hear folks say, I don't care what anybody else thinks. And and when you've come to this place, it's not a healthy place. And it's, it's a reminder in our lives that we're abusing the grace of God. Yes, you are saved by God's grace. Paul would write that in Ephesians in his letter to that church. You're saved by God's grace through faith. It's not of yourself. It's the gift of God. But you were created for his workmanship. You were created to reflect his image. You were created to give him glory. And when you thumb your nose to that lifestyle of Christ-likeness, you're cheapening God's grace. And you're 
taking for granted what Jesus died for. Paul even addressed this in Romans 6 and verse 1. He said, what shall then we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No! He says, by no means, under no circumstance. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And and Paul's so upset because when we as Christ followers live with no shame to sin, we look foolish to the onlooking world. So you get it in your corner with your friends, family, your relatives, your classmates, your coworkers. When you invite them to church and they say no thanks, what's the most common excuse? What do they say? Now, I don't want to go there because there's a bunch of, you've heard it too, they're hypocrites. Now, I love it when people, don't say that to me, because when people say that to me, I say, oh, really? So you don't go to Publix either, huh? Because, man, I was in there the other day, a bunch of hypocrites. You don't go to the movie, and you must not be a football fan because you never go to any stadium for sure. So that's a bunch of, mm. but what are they saying? Why would I do that? They're not the real deal. And that's an indictment on the church. They're, they're saying, I, I know what's going on there. Everybody knows how these folks live, and, and they're playing the games. They're putting on a costume. They're not real. And Paul said, this is a big problem, such a big problem that it has to be dealt with. So he says, even though I'm not there, I'm writing this to you in a letter, pretend I was there because I've already judged this guy in my mind, and here's what you do. I want you to gather together. I want you to come under the the name of Jesus and the power of God. And then they say something interesting. I want you to to deliver him to Satan so that his flesh might be destroyed. Hello. What in the world? What does that mean? Are are they going to kick him out on the city street and stone him? Is that the response? Not at all. But what they're saying is there's an acknowledgement that if this man, in this case, is a follower of Christ, he's living in the flesh, and the flesh in him needs to die. And so you've got to have an intervention. You've got to do whatever it takes in his life so that the flesh will die. Remember, Paul said there's three kinds of people. There's the natural person, that person who has no relationship with Christ. There's a spiritual person, that person who has the Spirit of God living in them, and they're living in the Spirit. Then there's the fleshly person, the carnal person. So they, they have the Spirit of God in them, but the flesh is overwhelming them now. And this is, this is man, this is a God moment for somebody. Some of you are in that role. You, you're a Christ follower. If you die today, you know it. You would go to heaven but you've allowed your life to be consumed with the flesh and you're satisfying the the desires of your flesh and and the flesh has to be put to death in you. Now, what Paul describes here, we have a term for in the church. It's called church discipline. And the irony is, is that if I were to ask you, and I'm not, most of you would probably say, I don't think I've ever really seen church discipline like what I just read. And yet, if I were to ask you, how many of you have been a part of a church where you knew someone was living in sin that was a part of the church? Most all of you would say, yeah, I've been there. So what do we do with that? Because was this just Paul? Was this just kind of a a blip on the radar screen? Well, actually, it's not. Jesus addresses in Matthew 18, in, in verse 15, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector not one of the favorite passages of an IRS agent. You're not in great category there. Jesus said, you've, you've got to deal with this. 
And Paul dealt with it differently in, in Titus. When he wrote to Titus in Titus 3 and verse 10, he says, that's for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. And Paul is saying to the church, and this Paul is saying to this church, hey, scripture is clear. When there is sin, whether it's a sinful attitude or a sinful action, and you're not dealing with it in your circle, you're bringing that sin into your life. It's not okay. And some of you do this in this little way. You, you've got folks, maybe not, certainly not this church, but maybe you've been in a church where someone was stirring up division and discord and you disagreed with it. Maybe they didn't like the pastor or they didn't like the music or they didn't like the paint color or the shingles or who knows what. But rather than saying, no, I'm warning you, do this again. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. You just listen to it. And it's not okay. It's not okay. Not because I say it. It's not okay because scripture says that is a dangerous and a destructive thing. Sin must always be dealt with. But we do it out of love. How many of you are parents or have been parents, right? Discipline is a part of that life. That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, chastises every son he receives. See, discipline in the body of Christ is always for the purpose of repentance and restoration. So what, he's, what he was saying is we want his spirit to die so that his, his soul, I mean his flesh to die so that his spirit, his soul might be right with God. That's why there's an intervention so that you can say, hey, wake up. You're not li- looking like the one you say you're living for. And until you get that straightened out, your life is out of whack. And and what you want is for them to come to an awakening and to understand that and then to be restored into right relationship with God. That's what's described in Galatians 6 where Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. So do we do that here? I have to tell you, actually we do. How does it look? Well, well, typically, if if we know there's a a sinful uh, problem with a a person who's active in the fellowship of our church, uh, we begin with what is our elder structure, which is the pastoral leaders of our church. And and usually some of our pastors will will meet with an individual. If that doesn't accomplish that repentance and restoration, often what will take place is we'll go to a place of, of of discipline with our deacons where the deacons are brought in the loop. And maybe some of the pastors with some of the deacons will, will meet with that individual. You say, well, I've never seen one brought before the church and then cast out. We, let me just tell you, it usually doesn't make it at that point. In fact, rarely does it make it beyond even that point with our elder pastoral leadership. And here's why. Sometimes there's repentance and restoration. Praise the Lord. But often, and this is what's sad, that person removes himself and they just fall out and, and they don't get right. So I would just say to you, you know, this is the great thing about teaching through a book. We, we come across some hard passages. Just know this is a place where, where we want to deal with things biblically. And we're going to try to do that always with love and grace. But we're going to do that in the spirit of the truth of God's word. Hi, I'm Paul Purvis, the lead pastor of Mission Hill Church right here in Tampa Bay. Thanks for taking the time to listen to today's The Barnabas Effect. It's a ministry intended to encourage, equip, and empower you. You may not know this, but this ministry is made possible because of the generosity of listeners like you. We are able to be on the air because listeners like you are gracious and give to this ministry. Would you consider making a gift today? 
it would be our honor to send you a gift, a resource, as a result of your gift of any size. And you can make that gift by going to missionhill.org and clicking on the banner that says The Barnabas Effect. That will direct you to a simple way that you can give right there online. Thanks again for listening to The Barnabas Effect today. And now we continue with our message. And it should be a reminder to, to some of you, some of you have people in your circle that it, it really doesn't need to get to the place yet of, of coming to that pastoral leadership or to that deacon leadership. You need to go to them and say, hey, I'm your brother. I'm your sister in Christ. This is not consistent with what God's called us to be. But before we move on, can I make this real practical? I, I love to take the microscope and just zoom it in. So we've, we've been talking about the church. What about me? Does anybody else here struggle with the flesh on a daily basis? I do. And so maybe every day you just begin with this prayer, dear God, destroy the flesh in me. Take away all of me that's not pleasing to you. Amen. Just think how your life would be different if you just started each day that way. Oh God, destroy the flesh in me. May I walk in the Spirit. May I be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit today. Well, got to move quick here. Paul knew his response might be harsh, so he he wanted to illustrate this so that they could understand it. So he said in verse 6, Your boasting's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you might be a new lump. So this is where the Bible says you need to be a new lump. Say this with me. Say, I want to be a new lump. Let me explain that real quickly. He's referring to uh, when the children of Israel were in captivity in Egypt. Some of you remember what took place there. God was bringing down the plagues on the Egyptian. And the last plague was the, the death of the firstborn son. The Jewish people were saved from that plague because of the Passover lamb. And, and so when that was taking place, they were in the midst of celebrating the feast of the unleavened bread. But God said to them, don't put leaven in that Passover bread. Now, he did that for two reasons. He did that because they didn't know when the Passover was going to take place. And he wanted them to be ready. And by the way, that's why we want to live our life in a pursuit of holiness, because we don't know when Christ is coming back. We simply do not know how much time we're going to have to get things right and deal with it later. So we want to be right. But the other reason is because the leaven represented kind of the prosperity and the nourishment of, of a man. And God wanted them to know that he was, their, he was going to be their nourishment. He was going to provide for them in this new journey they were going on. So do you understand what leaven is? So you're making bread and you've got this fresh dough. Leaven is what was put into the bread like yeast to make it rise. And so there was leaven that was kept out of the dough and kept in a jar of water and, and it would ferment. Some of you do this, by the way. You're still making kind of fresh bread. And, and just for the record, the pastor loves that, especially on Monday mornings. And so... But some of you do that. Now, what happens if that leaven sits there in that water and the fermentation process is taking place, but it's too long, it becomes contaminated? What happens if that contaminated leaven is mixed in with that uncontaminated dough? Everything's contaminated and more sickness occurs. You may have heard it this way growing up. Be careful, son. A rotten apple spoils a whole barrel or bunch. And so Paul was saying, this is important. 
If you don't deal with this sickness, the infection is going to spread throughout the whole body. Some of us remember back in the election, got some friends here that are from Michigan. And in Flint, Michigan, there was a big uh, uh, problem because the water supply was contaminated. It was polluted. And so children were exposed to the pollutants because they didn't deal with the contaminants. The same thing is true in the church. That's why Paul would say, don't be conformed to this world be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's why he would say in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. All the old things are passed away and all things have become new. Well, you can imagine they've been reading along. Paul has been addressing them harsh this whole letter. <laughs> and then he's, he's dropping the hammer right here. But he's going to explain it in this last phrase. And, and notice what he says here. In, in chapter 5 and verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter. This is a reminder that 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter that he wrote to Corinth. This is how we know it, because he says right here, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not to at all meaning the sexually immoral people of the world, the greedy, the swindlers, the idolaters, because to do that, you'd have to leave the world. So he was saying, you guys got confused. I've already addressed this before. I've told you, you've got to deal with sin. But I wasn't talking about how you look at all the sexually immoral or the greedy or the idolaters or the drunkards out in the world. I'm talking about in the church. Of course, they're out in the world. But we're supposed to be different. And you know what is so messed up about the church today? We spend all our time pointing our fingers at what's wrong with those that aren't in here, and we don't address the sinfulness in our lives. And so isn't it interesting that Paul says, yeah, you got to deal with sexual morality, and you got to deal with idolatry. And you know what idolatry is? It's any good thing that takes the place of the best thing. And you got to deal with the greedy. You know what greed is? not being generous with what God has entrusted you with. And you got to deal with the swindlers and, and you've got to deal with the drunkards. And he's saying, and I'm talking about inside the church. So I, I want you to understand something. He's not saying just stay away from the world. Christ's followers are not called to be isolated from the world. We're called to be insulated from the world so that we can be identified with Christ. In those nearly 49 years, I've I've learned that I have to be careful about telling you how to parent. But if you're a parent or you ever think you may one day be a parent or you're a grandparent, can I just tell you something? Don't spend all your energy trying to protect your kids from everything that's out there because you can't do it. Your energy giving them a foundation of the faith. Friends, that's why in our personal lives we have to get this right. And that's why as a church, we have to take sin seriously. And that's why I've always loved this book. Because it does have a happy ending. It's kind of cool. So uh, let me just read the ending to you. Filled with shame. Hey, that's a change, right? Earlier, he was too proud to even tell the tailors, hey, I think I'm naked. Filled with shame, the emperor made his way back to the palace to get dressed. I have been very foolish, he said to his chief minister. If my appearance had not been so important to me, I would never have left my...
be cheated by those two tailors. I would never be so vain about my clothes again. As I think about 1 Corinthians 5, I know in my life, I have a simple prayer. Maybe you can share this today. May God give us greater shame over our sin and greater sensitivity to our Savior. I, I want to live in such a way, I, I'm not going to be sinless on this side of heaven, but I sure do hope I sin less. And so I want to live in such a way when my attitudes or my actions are displeasing to the Lord, I know it. And the truth is, I, I say this often, for most of you, I think that's where you are. Pastor Jim, have to stand up. dwelling in you and it's called the conviction of the Holy Spirit and I want to live with that sensitivity so that when I sin I can keep that short list of accounts and confess it before God and I want to be sensitive to why that's so important the reason it's so important is that Jesus died so that I don't have to be a slave to that sin may that be true of you today too You've been listening to The Barnabas Effect with Pastor Paul Purvis. The Barnabas Effect is here to provide listeners like you with biblical truth and spiritual encouragement. But it can't be done without your financial support. Go to missionhill.org and click on the Give tab. Your financial support helps us reach those seeking truth about God and themselves. Thank you for giving at missionhill.org. And join us weekdays at 9 a.m. for The Barnabas Effect with Pastor Paul Purvis on Faith Talk AM 570 and 910.